Our text this morning is from Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises you give us. We thank you for the blessings you give us. And may we be encouraged by your word. May we be strengthened and may we be blessed. We love and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, of necessity, today's message is going to take a different tone than the messages that we have had for the last few weeks. We've looked at the church's in Pergamos, Thyatira, and Sardis over the last three weeks. And each of these churches had some pretty glaring problems. Pergamos was a church that had compromised to a great degree with the surrounding culture. Thyatira was a solid church, and yet the leadership in the church had allowed the seducing Jezebel spirit a prominent voice in the congregation. Sardis, as we saw last week, was a church that had managed to escape persecution, which sounds good, but the way in which they escaped was to make themselves so much like their surrounding culture that there was no distinction between themselves and the surrounding culture. It's hard to be persecuted when there is no difference. Doug Wilson opens his book against the church with these words. The bride of Christ is a white-hot mess. I don't know if there is anyone who can disagree with that. But we must remember that in each of these churches, there were some. In the case of Sardis, there were few who did not follow the trend. There were a few in Sardis who had not spoiled or defiled their garments. But that brings us to Philadelphia. And Philadelphia is a rare church indeed. The words of he who is holy finds nothing to condemn in this congregation. Of the seven congregations in Asia Minor, only Smyrna and Philadelphia escape words of condemnation from the Lord. Smyrna, as you may recall, gets its name from the word for myrrh. They were a church that from the outside looked weak. They were a church that everyone assessed as being poor. But the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life, declared them to be rich. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. 
Phileo is one of the Greek words for love, and Delphi is a root of the word brother. Jesus is presented to this church as he who is holy and he who is true. He is also presented as he who has the key of David and he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Now there is a word that is used in the description of our Lord in Revelation 3-7 that everyone uses and very few people actually think about what it means. When I say we do not know what it means, I think that probably half or more of the people here could give me the correct answer as to what it means to be holy. But I also think we have not thought through the implications of what the word means. To be holy means to be set apart or to be separated for a purpose. For example, when Moses stood in the presence of the burning bush, he was told to take off his shoes because the ground on which he was standing was holy. It was consecrated ground because the Lord was there. The entirety of the book of Leviticus was about separating or setting apart what was, conse- what was common from what was holy. God's people have been identified throughout history using the language of holiness. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah is in the heavenly throne room of God. And amidst all that is going on, we see the seraphim crying out to one another, holy, holy, holy. God is above all, beyond all, and he is distinct from all of his creation. Of course, this brings out another key to understanding holiness, and that is the ability to make distinctions. Another word for that is discernment. We live in a day where discernment or discrimination is quite often looked down upon. In fact, I would gander if you're under 40 or 50 years old, you look at the word discrimination as a dirty word. We've often got so bad in our day and age that it is considered hate speech to refer to a person by something other than their preferred pronoun. Truth does not matter in today's age, but Jesus is presented to the church in Philadelphia as he who is holy and he who is true. In John 18, 37 through 38, when Pontius Pilate is interrogating Jesus, we read this interesting exchange, and I think we often miss it. Pilate therefore said to him, speaking to Jesus, are you a king then? And Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Now, remember John 14, 6, Jesus declares to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The irony of the statement by Pilate is that he is interrogating the living embodiment of truth, and he asks the question, What is truth? I have heard before, and I tend to believe it, that when Pilate asked his question, he was not asking for an answer. He was not asking, tell me what is truth. What he was doing was speaking the implications of the prevailing worldview of his day. When you have a God for the sun and a God for the crops, and you have several different fertility gods and a God of justice, etc., 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 The ultimate casualty of such a worldview is truth. 
When Pilate asked Jesus what is truth, he was saying whose truth? The truth of Zeus? The truth of Poseidon? Because truth changed based on who you are talking to is not truth. We can mock this kind of view, but when a person speaks of my truth, they are saying the very same thing. Truth does not change. There is no such thing as your truth, and there is no such thing as my truth. There is truth. Everything else is a lie. Truth never changes. There is only truth, and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is holy, and Jesus is true. He is also spoken of in this passage as having the key of David. Now, not surprisingly, holiness and truth are two subjects that the Bible spends quite a bit of time speaking about. If Good chance you can open up a page of your Bible and find the word holy. Good chance you can find the word truth. However, this term, the key of David, only appears in one other place. But it says, he is the one who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one's open. We have to dig to find the key of David. In Revelation 3 and also in Isaiah, the 22nd chapter. In Isaiah 22, God is bringing an accusation against a royal steward for falsehood. He is not properly stewarding. The steward who is supposed to work for the king or for God has instead betrayed the king's trust. Listen to these words from Isaiah 22, 19 through 23. So I will drive you out of your office, and from your position he will pull you down. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay upon his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. So just like the church in Smyrna, the church in Philadelphia was undergoing persecution from what is called the synagogue of Satan. And I find it interesting that the two churches in Asia Minor that had no condemnation brought against them were both mentioned as being troubled by the synagogue of Satan. The synagogue of Satan was the unfaithful and apostate Jewish synagogue. They were unfaithful because they rejected the Messiah. We know this because of the overwhelming testimony of Scripture. These people could probably trace their lineage back to Abraham. They claimed to be Jews, but according to the text, they were not. One of the earliest New Testament Scriptures about the unfaithful Jews is found in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3. John the baptizer is in the wilderness, and he is preaching the kingdom, and he is calling people to repent and baptizing them to repentance. And his teaching attracts many of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And I, I want you to understand this. If you're preaching and you're attracting the outcasts of society, which is what he was doing, the people who knew they were sinners, they were coming out in mass to see what was going on. But suddenly you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees showing up. We've got the upper crust coming out to see what's going on. But listen to how John reacts. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, 
who warns you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruit worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. There was a presumption by these Pharisees and Sadducees that because of their natural lineage, being from Abraham, that they were the inheritors of the promises of God. Now, we've already looked at the way Jesus dealt with them in the Gospel of John. We did that a couple weeks ago. He referred to them as children of their father, the devil. So I, I, I catch the contrast here. We're children of Abraham. We have all the promises of God. And Jesus says, no, you're children of the devil. It's not, no, you're natural born. He says, you're children of the devil. So he's telling them, you, you think because of your lineage, you are the inheritors. But no, you're of your father, the devil. So the question becomes, who is the inheritor of the promise? The Bible tells us the answer to this plainly, that through Abraham and his seed or his offspring, the world would be blessed. But the Apostle Paul makes it very clear to who this promise is speaking of in Galatians 3, 16. Paul writes, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So every time someone wants to quote that scripture to you and tell you, well, here's who it's talking about, Paul tells us it's talking about Jesus. Now, that's not a surprise to us, or it shouldn't be. All of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Listen to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, speaking of the word that was made flesh. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The synagogue at the time of Christ, and here prior to the fall of Jerusalem, was full of wicked men who had rejected the Messiah. They were living in presumption that because of their physical descent from Abraham, that they were the heirs of the kingdom. But John the baptizer and all of the apostles, and yes, Jesus himself, told them that they were mistaken. And here in Revelation, we learn that they were not just slightly mistaken, they had instead become a synagogue of Satan. With all of that being said, though, one of the characteristics that this synagogue also possessed was they had external authority. They were looked at as having certain authority. And one of the things they could do was they could cast people out and prevent them from gathering with the people. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who had been born blind. This miracle or this sign should have been something that everyone rejoiced over. But instead of rejoicing, the Pharisees were instead irate because Jesus had healed him on the Sabbath day. Listen to verse 16 of John 9. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. As the chapter goes on, the man who was healed has its parents brought before the Pharisees, and they are put to the question, 
Rather than answer that their son had been born blind, had been healed, they told the Pharisees, ask him, he is of age. And this is a great text because the text tells us why they answered this way. In verse 23, we have the parenthetical statement, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Christ, Jesus to be the Christ, that he was to be put out of the synagogue. The end result of the matter takes place in verses 23 and 24. So they again called the man who was blind. This is the Pharisees and the Sadducees calling the blind man and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know was that I was blind. Now I see. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I don't know who this guy was, but I know he's got a high level of snark. And I love it. Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciple. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were completely born in your sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. So the exchange ends. Jesus heals him. And then these guys want to come against Jesus. And so they attack the man. And the man has wonderful responses. This guy, awesome. And their response, because they can't strike at Jesus at this point, they cast this man out of the synagogue. This is the origins of the synagogue of Satan. They are rejecting the truth for a lie. So he's cast out of the synagogue. The Jewish synagogue, by the time we get to the book of Revelation, by the mid-first century, they have become a great enemy to the faithful, in many cases persecuting them even to death, and in the best cases by simply driving them out. Jesus is telling them, I have the key of David and these imposters will be cast out. He says, yes, they're casting you out. Yes, they're shutting the door on you. But I will open the door. I will open the door and no one can shut it. And I will shut the door that no one can open. Verse 8 says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. And no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, but have kept my word. And have not denied my name. Indeed. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Remember, all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. This means if someone is looking at anything else for their salvation, for their deliverance, they are looking in the wrong place. And I want to emphasize something else on this point. If you are looking to anything other than Jesus... For the fulfillment of prophecy, you are looking in the wrong place. 
The question becomes, are you in Christ? The members of the synagogue, the unbelieving Jews, have rejected Christ and thus have literally become a synagogue of Satan. There are some who want to differentiate between different sects of Judaism. But the question is always, what do you believe about Christ? We've got Orthodox Jews. We've got conservative Jews. We've got rabbinic Jews. The question isn't what sect of Judaism you belong to. The question always is, what do you say about Jesus? David Chilton says there is no such thing as Orthodox Judaism. There is no such thing as a genuine belief in the Old Testament that is consistent with the rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord and God. Those who do not believe in Christ do not believe the Old Testament either. The God of Judaism is the devil. The Jew will not be recognized by God as one of his chosen people until he abandons his demonic religion and returns to the faith of his fathers, the faith which embraces Jesus Christ and his gospel. When Christ-rejecting Jews claim to follow the footsteps of Abraham, Jesus says they lie. And although they currently have the upper hand in Philadelphia, their denomination, their, their dominant domination of the true covenant people will not last long. Christ himself will force them to come and bow down at the Christian's feet. This does not mean that they will worship the Christians, but they will come and they will acknowledge that the Messiah is Christ in the presence of the faithful. Now, something else that should encourage us in this passage is that Jesus has the key of David. And I want you to think about it this way. There is no closed door that Jesus cannot open. There are many times in the flesh when we are discouraged because everything around us looks bleak or dark. But we must remember that it is Jesus who holds the key. We must learn to trust in him and trust in his word and prepare to see doors opened. And if we are trusting in Jesus, as we sang in our song this morning, we know he does all things well. And there should be wonderful encouragement in that. We also learn that Philadelphia was not a prominent and strong church, at least not in the eyes of their neighbors. Their reputation in the city was that they were small and weak. In the text, it says they have a little strength. Their true, their true strength is revealed in their relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. I find it interesting that the church immediately following Philadelphia, the church of Laodicea that we're going to talk about next week, they also had a reputation. They had a reputation that they were strong. But Jesus tells them they are nothing. Philadelphia is in name weak, but Jesus gives them nothing but encouragement. Just like the man who had been born blind and was healed by Jesus was brought into conflict with the Pharisees, the relationship that the church had with Jesus was going to bring them into conflict with the synagogue of Satan. When you learn to place your trust in Jesus, this does not mean the end of your problems. This is one of the problems, I think, with the modern gospel. We want to tell people this will end your problems. Learn to trust Jesus and end your problems. It doesn't. What it does do, though, is change the side you are on. If everyone thinks you are great, 
but the one who holds the key is not on your side, you're still in prison. The difference between the Laodicean church who trusted in their own sufficiency and the Philadelphian church who had nothing and trusted in Christ is all the difference in the world. The last part of verse 9 talks about the synagogue of Satan would be made to come and worship at their feet. They will be forced to acknowledge the covenantal status as the church as the inheritor of the promises to Abraham and Moses. For the church in Christ is the true Israel. Listen to Hebrews 12, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable company of angels. Apostate Israel has been pruned out of the tree of life of the covenant people, while believers in Christ from all nations have been grafted in. This is the message of Romans 11. The only hope for those outside of the covenant line, regardless of their ethnic or religious heritage, is to recognize Christ as Savior and Lord, submitting themselves unto him. Unless and until the Jews become grafted into the covenant line by God's grace, they will remain outside the people of God and will perish with the heathen. The last verses of Romans 1 speaks of the physical descendants of Abraham returning to faith in Christ. But until that happens... They are classed with the heathen. There is one major difference, though, between the heathen and the unbelieving Jew. To the Jews were entrusted the words of the living God, and they have rejected it. Now, verse 10 says, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So the church in Philadelphia is characterized by obedience to the Lord's command to persevere. And they are told that they will be kept from the hour of tribulation that is coming upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. This verse is often cited as a proof text for the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I mentioned last week that dispensationalists see a rapture in chapter 4 of Revelation. Of course, to do this, they must take the entire first, actually the entire book out of context. They see the hour of trial as the seven-year tribulation. But I want to ask a simple question. How is the faithful church in actual Philadelphia? So take yourself back here in Philadelphia. You're being persecuted by the synagogue of Satan. How is the faithful church in actual Philadelphia to be encouraged that Jesus will rapture the faithful saints of God 2,000 years from now before the great tribulation comes upon the earth. Thank you for that encouragement. No, he's telling them that be encouraged. You will be kept from the hour of tribulation that is about to come on the earth. And the word there is not a word that means about, i.e. 2,000 years. It's coming soon. The message was there was coming a great trial upon the land, Jerusalem, and Israel were to soon to be wiped out by this coming trial. The Roman Empire was going to undergo cataclysmic upheaval, and amazingly, in Philadelphia, the church was spared much of the destruction that was cast on everyone else. In verse 11, he says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Behold, I am coming quickly is what we call a time text. The book of Revelation is full of them. 
We have spoken of this in the past, and of course we will surely talk about it again. The text is speaking about events that are soon to take place. The deliverance and protection of the church would have little meaning if it was speaking about events many millennia in the future, even one millennia. Jesus is telling them that the promised judgment on apostate Israel and on imperial Rome was coming. There are some who insist that the word has to do with eminence. And what they mean by that is he doesn't mean he's coming soon. He means there's nothing else that needs to happen before he comes. That's the way they read these texts. And I want you to understand, that is, that is adding into the text. That's a classic example of eisegesis. Not reading the text, but reading into the text. All right? They say it means there's nothing else that needs to happen. No, Jesus is saying, I am coming soon. The coming in judgment that is spoken about in this verse is not about the rapture. It is about deliverance for his faithful people who are persevering. The church in Philadelphia, as we have mentioned, does not have great material or financial assets. In the eyes of the world, they are weak. But they are told to hold fast to what they do have so that no one can take their crown. In 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, the promises made to the nation of Israel in Exodus 19 are applied to the church of Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. Remember in Revelation 1, 6, we are told that Jesus has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. The kingdom of God is invading all of creation, and they are told to hold fast and endure and not allow that crown to be taken. Keep your trust in Christ. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. The promises to the overcomers in this church alludes back to the Old Testament imagery of the temple. This image of the temple is a picture of our salvation in Christ Jesus. 1 Kings chapter 7 gives a description of several pillars in the temple of God. The two most prominent pillars being the two at the entrance of the holiest place. They were named Jachin and Boaz. These names mean he shall establish and in him is strength. To be, to be made a pillar in the temple of God and to not wander anymore is a statement that the Lord has with strength established his people and made them into the house of the living God. The Lord also promises to write the name of his God and the city, New Jerusalem, upon them. Now, I'm going to talk about one of the things that disturbs me about the way people read the book of Revelation. I... I very often get frustrated when I hear people talk about the book of Revelation. I've spent a lot of time studying this book. And so often people read it, and I understand their fascination, but I want you to answer a question to yourself. Just think about it for a minute. How often have you heard conversations about the mark of, beast, mark of the beast and what it is? Anyone ever hear those conversations? Lots of articles written about it. They always want to write about the mark of the beast, what it is. 
Sure, it's scary. I'll give it that. But it's, and, it, and it's scary, I think, because it's irreversible. But I want to be clear. The mark of the beast is not a barcode or a microchip. All right? I'm, I'm telling you right now. It's not a barcode. It's not a microchip. It is the antithesis of the mark that God places on his people. It is the opposite of the mark that God places on his people. And, and this is, the, uh, uh, forgive me for being figurative. God has placed a mark on his people. And guess what? I don't see it with my eyes. God has placed a mark on us. Deuteronomy 6, a passage which the Hebrews call the Shema Israel because the first Hebrew word is Shema or a command to hear what we read. And pay attention to this verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and you rise up. Listen to this. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Revelation 22.4 speaks of the ones who have overcome as seeing his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. The ones who overcome here in verse 12 will have the name above every name written on their forehead. They will also have on them the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem. One of the themes we often miss is that the heavenly Jerusalem that is seen throughout the book of Revelation is a city that comes down from God, from heaven. We miss the significance of this statement if we see this city as a physical city that I quote hovers over the earth and, and when, I, when I say that that is a quote I found in a certain homeschool curriculum what we must see here is that when the people of God gather in Jesus name they are as we say almost every Lord's day truly worshipping in heavenly places in the very midst of the blessed trinity with the saints from all ages and from every tongue tribe and nation worshiping in the beauty of holiness when we gather together in his name we are assembling in that new jerusalem they are doing this because the new jerusalem has come down from heaven and has invaded the earth now the text closes with the words he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches i have closed many of our messages to the churches with these words from the text but I want to point something else out that is significant. We are commanded to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, not what the Spirit says to the church. Why is that significant? The letters to the seven churches were given to all seven of the churches. That means that all, although Philadelphia had nothing negative said about her, the warnings to every other church still applied to Philadelphia. And be honest with yourself. If I sent out a letter to seven of you, and I put it on one page, so I've got a note to Dominic here, and I've got a note to Isaiah, then Clint, and I've got that there, which one of you is going to go through it and read your mail only? 
No, you want to know, Dominic, you want to know what he said to Isaiah. All right? Philadelphia needs to know what he said to Sardis. Sardis needs to know what he said to Ephesus. All right? And they're commanded here, hear what the Spirit says to the churches, not to the church. This may seem obvious, but you're a member of the church of Philadelphia who had overcome many of the trials of persecution and suffering. But if over time you left your first love, you still have a problem. This is why we must also pay attention and hear what is said to each of the churches. There are warnings and there are blessings. But if you have an ear, you are commanded to truly hear what the Spirit of the Lord says to the churches. Let us pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to your churches, that you walk among the candlesticks as our Lord. May we hear your word. May we receive it. May we be corrected and walk in the steps you have ordered for us. We love and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. At this time, we will offer ourselves through our tithes and our offerings. And as we do so, we will stand together and we will sing through north and south and east and west. Thank you. 